All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I feel like The Matrix is probably like the prime example of, wow, I appreciate this, and I don't like it. Um, I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and I'd like to take the time to uh, acknowledge that Missy's really smart. And I, when I was reading through <laughs> this outline, I could see how much effort she put into it. And not that she doesn't put a lot of effort into it, but this, the other ones I just shit right out. <laughs> this is some dense stuff. And yeah. I understood a lot of it. So I'd like to take this time to acknowledge that Missy's really smart. Thank you. And we should all appreciate her for listening to Philosophize This twice. <laughs> I'm I'm actually reading right now. I checked out from the library. There's a book that's all about like connecting the Matrix to philosophy, which mm-hmm. is really helpful. And I think mm-hmm. it's really good at explaining stuff so if you're more into the matrix than i am and you want to know more about the connections to philosophy it's called splinter in your mind i can't remember who the Mm -hmm. author is it's downstairs right now but you'll probably hear some quotes from it on the next episode i just didn't get it in time for this one Mm -hmm. um so today we're talking about the matrix uh we're talking this is going to be the first of two episodes about the matrix this one will cover well i'll talk about that in a second um this is a series of films by the wachowski sisters following neo who believes he is a computer hacker in 1999 in fact the real world has been taken over by ai powered machines invented by humans after a war the humans lost um humans torch to the sky quote unquote to eliminate the machine's access to solar power which not to editorialize here but that sounds like a fucking terrible idea um (laughs) And the machines retaliated by farming humans' batteries and plugging them into the Matrix. Which Which is is essentially what the humans did to them. Right. Um, And the Matrix is a simulated reality. Uh, Neo is awoken from the Matrix by Morpheus, who believes he is the one, a prophesied savior, who will free humanity from this, like, existence of, like, battery slavery. Um, Though he does not initially appear to be the one, Trinity, another human living outside the Matrix, falls in love with him and he dies and is resurrected at a key moment, and therefore he is the one. I have some complaints about the story there, but whatever. What if Morpheus was Mobius? Morbius. Morbius. What if? What if? Think about that. Don't. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe that movie was memed back into the I know. It's doing badly. Um, next <laughs> is The Animatrix, which is a series of short animated films that flesh out the world of The Matrix and include some hints about what's to come. Um, you see that a lot more people are actively pushing back against the Matrix, which makes the story less about one group of liberators and more about a conscious movement. I really liked the Matrix. I thought it was yeah. the strongest one of the ones we've watched so far. Um, and third, you have the Matrix Reloaded, in which Agent Smith, who is a program of the Matrix and one of the antagonists of the first movie, manages to cap. No, he manages to escape the Matrix and enter the real world. The Oracle tells Neo he must go to the source of the Matrix, which he attempts to do by rescuing the Keymaster. This is literally what everybody's named. I think it's so funny and silly, and I like it. Um, A lot of things go wrong, and Neo eventually learns that being the one is by design of the Matrix. Like, he essentially, he's not, like, programmed to exist, but also he's kind of programmed to exist. You know, I feel like this would make a really fucky. good young adult TV show. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just good enough. Like, you're like, oh, man, this is good. For- then they couldn't have the hot fucking in it. Mm, this is true. <laughs> yeah. So Neo discovers that being the one is actually by design of the Matrix. And he is actually the sixth one. Uh, and he now has to make a choice. Reboot the Matrix and kill everybody except a handful of people that he's going to, like, hand select. Or 
uh, go to save Trinity and kill literally everybody. It's a really weird choice. Like the choice is everybody dies or or, or everybody, everybody dies. dies. It's not a great ultimatum. Um, he chooses to go save Trinity, which honestly I feel like is like why the fuck not? Because everyone dies. Yeah, it's like everybody or six people. Everybody answer. I mean, it's a classic trolley problem, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's just like it's a weird choice. Anyway, um, yeah. So he chooses to go save Trinity. Zion is attacked. Neus, Neus. Neo, Deus Ex Machina's them out of dying with his cool new lightning powers, and the movie ends on a super cliffhanger because Agent Smith is hanging out in the real world and Neo's in a coma. So happens. Yeah, it was a lot. Um, this franchise really wears its influences and themes on its sleeve. Uh, it is not shy about saying precisely what it means, and as we all know, I fucking admire that. Like, I really, I don't really care for The Matrix. I know, unpopular opinion. I'm not a cyberpunk fan. I want to talk more about cyberpunk in the next episode. I just, I had to explain Baudrillard in this episode, and that was going to take a thousand years. So there was only so much I could do. Um, So we'll talk more about cyberpunk next time. But I'm just not really a cyberpunk fan, which seems kind of weird because cyberpunk is like a direct derivative of noir. Um, But for whatever reason, like the aesthetics of cyberpunk just don't do it to me. I think like, it's really cool and I'm like happy that it exists, but I don't generally speaking enjoy it. I like, I would agree with that. I think it's really interesting in what it's doing. It just doesn't hit what I like about sci-fi and which is why I think the animatrix does because I think the, the, the robot uprising is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and when later on I find those parts of the movie the most interesting. Yeah. When they're fighting like the last, the last one in the, in the animatrix, I was just kind of like, it just feels like the matrix. Right. Um, it's not really giving me much different. Um, I, the last one was the one that they used like to promote the Animatrix, I think, and it was like the least yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was the least interesting. Um, but like, I love the one where they get the robot on their side, mm-hmm. and then like everyone fucking dies. That was like the the prime example of women may not wear pants. <laughs> no one wore pants. I think men wore pants. I, oh, I'm thinking in the dream time. Oh, not in the dream. No. It just, oh, yeah. It, no, there's no pants. Women are not allowed to no wear pants. pants in the animatrix. <laughs> they just walk around in their underwear or, I guess, leather. Yeah. Um, you can have leather pants. I was just kind of struck by the amount, the lack, I should say, rather, of pants present in the real world of the ma- of the Matrix. Yeah. There was just not a lot of pants there. Yeah. Which, but, you know, chase your bliss. Yeah. But I thought that was really interesting and like I thought that was a really good story to tell. And that's what I like I like I think that's more interesting. I think yeah. digging more into like the the robots, I keep calling them aliens. Um are, it's just I don't know, it's just that interest. You just you just prefer machines to humanity and we know this about you. This is true. Right? I love it. We droid, just know. We which, just know. Which really helps me in the last movie. <laughs> um yeah, so I like I really appreciate what this franchise is doing. Like I like I like it on an intellectual level. On an yeah. on an enjoyability level, I don't care. I like I'm really sorry, but I'm watching this and I'm just like this is not for me. Um there are moments that I really like it, but it's not I wonder if they moment. strayed away from the cool and put more into other stuff if you would have liked it. I would like it more if they invested 2 seconds in a character. <laughs> Any of them. <laughs> I just feel like all of them are so cool to a person who isn't me. Like that that style of cool doesn't 
like resonate with me and the characterization is just more about like fulfilling archetypal roles than it is about being characters and that's why I just kind of I'm just like it's not it's just not for me it's not it's not my kind of cool and I'm you know like I love an archetype but it like you gotta you gotta do it like you gotta like give them a, a person a personhood to not just be the archetype well, it's almost like they're just still in the matrix because they're just shells we're all in the matrix what's what's life then truly <laughs> We'll get we'll get there. Don't worry. Um, so uh, the, as I as I said like five minutes ago, uh, the Matrix is not shy about saying precisely what it means. The Wachowskis in general not fucking shy, and I appreciate that. It very much reminds me of what's his name, George Romero. Yeah, yeah. Just like increasingly, like no, this this is it. This is exactly what you're going to get it this time, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> So I want to start with like some of the broad cultural influences and references, and then we'll get into the parts that really felt like homework for me, because reading about post-structuralism is just really fucking hard for me for some I reason. I really loved every time I got to read the word simulacra. Simulacra. Because it's just a really satisfying. It is. It is a cool word, to be honest. Yeah. I just It just feels like the craw of it feels good, and the slaw of it. Yeah. It just feels The slaw and the craw. The slaw and the craw. <laughs> <laughs> we're so i'm so intellectual mm-hmm. i love the slum we're geniuses crow. here um the first i think one of the biggest and like most obvious immediate references is alice's inv- adventures in wonderland and through the looking glass um they are two of the major touch cultural touchstones in the first movie in the first scene where we're introduced to neo he's told to follow the white rabbit which is what eventually leads him to trinity and then morpheus which is a really clear reference right like you hear follow the white rabbit you're like oh also wonderland they're like okay everyone will get this although at this point maybe people hear follow the white rabbit and they go oh the matrix um but the basic concept of a world that exists alongside the real world is also central to all three stories the matrix alice's adventures in wonderland and through the looking glass um In the case of Through the Looking Glass in particular, Alice enters Looking Glass land after wondering what's on the other side of the mirror. In The Matrix, Neo's entry into the real world consists of him being sort of smothered by a liquid mirror. Uh, The tone of each story is different, obviously, Um, but the method is similar. And we know that the Wachowskis are consciously invoking the Alice stories because of the follow the white rabbit quote. They wanted you to get it. Yeah. And and like, uh, I can't remember exactly what Morpheus says, but he says like, oh, it's like take the blue pill, stay in Wonderland. Like yeah. these well, are, and then there's also it also really reminds me of like, um, you eat one, you get bigger. Yep. You eat the other, yeah. You yep. Get smaller. Yep. It's they're very consciously invoking. Uh, I want you to get they it. They want you to get it. Uh, interestingly, the Matrix functions almost like the Looking Glass world to Alice. Um, she dreams a new world to explore. He awakens in the real one. She travels through the mirror to a strange place. He's subsumed by the mirror into the real place. It feels like a conscious decision to, instead of showing us an interesting journey into a fictional world, situate us with the character who needs to wake up. So there's like this interesting reversal going on mm-hmm. of the familiar story of Alice in Wonderland and The Matrix, which kind of inverts it. So this is a quote from Rewriting Reality, Reading The Matrix by Russell J. Kilborn, who writes, the film's almost parodically literal, like, oh God, Lacanian, Lacanian. Again, one of those names I've read Lacan. a whole bin. A whole bunch, and I haven't actually said. Uh, I think it's lycanthrope. No, I'm. That's a joke. <laughs> the film's almost parodically literal Lacanian mirror scene departs from Alice in the same gesture of invoking Carol's narrative. Neo does not pass through the licking, looking glass. The licking glass. Good mm. grief! 
but literally merges with it, the real and not real becoming momentarily indistinguishable, as if in order to show that what has been taken for real is in fact as illusory as its cracked and distorted reflection. As Baudrillard might say, the simulacrum is a mirror that reflects only itself. But Neo's journey does not stop here, and Baudrillard, like Neo's residual self-image, is quickly left behind. We are invoking philosophers before we've gotten to the philosophy section, so please bear with me. We're going to put a pin in Baudrillard, and we'll come back to him later. The amount of times I've heard Baudrillard, just the name... Baudrillard. Baudrillard. Uh, so two things. <laughs> the Lacanian mirror scene refers to the part when the mirror subsumes Neo and also to a stage proposed by Jacques Lacan. Lacan? Lacan? Do you want me to see if Google will tell me? No, I want to struggle. Uh, I know I learned about Lacan. 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 Pecan. I don't know. Pecan. I learned about it. <laughs> okay, here. No, that's... In English, but I don't remember how to pronounce it. Lacken? La- no way. Lacken? Uh, I just want to pronounce it correctly. So I'm just going to continue to mispronounce Lacan. It's <laughs> what, what we're learning. Lacan. Uh, so yeah, it's referring to not only to the scene in which Neo is subsumed by the mirror, but also a stage proposed by Jacques Lacan, a psychoanalyst who initially suggested the mirror stage as the stage of development when infants begin to recognize themselves in mirrors, and later as an ongoing stage where a person recognizes their own subjectivity and they start to develop the ego. And this is not just like an ego, like Kanye West, I got a big ego. It's That's a song. <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know. For those who don't know. Um, this it's is like... The, the id, the ego, yeah. and the superego. When I read this part, I was like, I thought, oh, the first time I looked in the mirror, I thought noses were weird and I shouldn't have one. You were right, though. Noses are weird. They are. You, you love them, though. I love them. But noses are weird. And so I was like, this is maybe the truth in which I saw. <laughs> Um, so Lacan also wrote extensively about the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real, all of which are capitalized, so you know they're important. Um, and he referred to the real as impossible, so it is not surprising that he's also invoked, intentionally or not, in The Matrix. I, it's almost certainly intentionally. Like, it's, yeah. I don't doubt for a second it's intentionally, but it's not like, they did not, the Wachowskis did not signpost Lacan in the same way that they signposted Baudrillard. Um, again, we'll get to Baudrillard later, but the point that Kilbourne is making here is that the mirror is proven false right it doesn't show the truth it shows an invention disguised as truth again Baudrillard will come later so are they saying that the reality is wonderland or not wonderland they are saying so using the mirror to my understanding they are showing essentially that um when the mirror subsumes neo Mm -hmm. it is only it is recreating what has already been done to neo the illusion is enveloping him in the same way that he's already been enveloped by the matrix but which way is he coming from i think it's a reversal so in so in through the looking glass she's like what would be on the other side of the mirror and Uh she steps through the mirror in this case neo is being forcibly shown what is on the other side of the mirror as the mirror takes initiative to overcome okay. him. I get that. I see. I get that. I could get the other way too because Wonderland's fucking terrifying. That is true. Um, but I but I don't think I think yeah, I think that's probably. I was reading I think actually I was reading Ursula Le Guin this morning and in the essay it was oh I can't remember maybe it wasn't Ursula Le Guin. Some writer, maybe Ursula Le Guin, was talking about the fact that Alice in Wonderland was a strange story because Alice doesn't behave like a child in it and that she's never scared. Um, which is very interesting. She just gets angry. Yeah, I don't. That might be. 
I can't remember who I was reading. It doesn't matter. Um, so to break down the quote, the film makes this almost funny, literal interpretation of Lacan's mirror stage in that Neo's body is literally taken over by a mirror, helping him establish his true self. Like that is figuratively when Lacan talks about the mirror stage, the interaction of the mirror and the body is what helps the, a baby establish itself. It helps the person establish personhood by recognizing that they have a body in the matrix the the mirror overtakes the body and establishes that what neo sees as his true self is in fact not his true self um at the same time it's continuing to invoke alice in wonderland given that she travels through the looking glass in the second book and by doing this the wachowskis show us the melding of media references with philosophy and that neo has been living in a world of illusion that no matter how real it feels or looked is a recreation of something simulated that is the simulacra love it well, again, we'll get back to the simulacra. It took a long time. And even now, I'm like, I still struggle with what's like, I know what simulacra is, but yeah. it's still really hard to wrap my mind around it. it when I, because I was reading a lot for this and I kept Imagine having to that. remind myself, like, it's almost like when you're learning a foreign word mm-hmm. and you have to mentally translate it. That's yeah. what I was having to do with simulacra for yeah. a large part of outlining this episode. Um, so now over 20 years later, it feels kind of cliche and trite to essentially say, what if the real world was fake? Like, that just feels kind of silly now 20 years after this has come out but i think the reason that the idea of life as a simulation became something discussed by the average person is because of the matrix like i just don't think that simulation like life as a simulation was really on the minds of like the average Mm -hmm. person before this movie um it really gives me early conspiracy theory yeah and i find simulation theory personally very boring and annoying to be honest Mm -hmm. um i once saw it described as religion for tech bros and like show me the lie i think that's so accurate um we will talk about determinism in a bit because like they have they are connected um and we will talk about where this movie sort of fails for me because it in in the end of the movie it does kind it doesn't quite get there for me um but i think it's a good thing actually for people to begin to question the world that they've always lived in um whether the movie is fully successful in achieving that goal instead of just leading people towards simulation theory i think is where it breaks down but again we'll talk about that later um anything about alice in wonderland no, I should reread it. <laughs> um, so this is. I also want to talk about references to myth and this the classics. So interesting to me. Um, so there's lots of mythological and classical references. The references to classical philosoph- philosophers, uh, Socrates is. Well, it's attributed to Socrates, but also a lot of people said it. But it's probably referencing Socrates in this. Uh, the words "know thyself" are above the kitchen door at the Oracle's house. Um, Really, the entirety of it is like an al- is is like a an allegory of allegory of the cave, um, where you know you have the shadows on the cave wall being the matrix and the real world existing behind it. Uh, it's one of my favorite favorite. Mm-hmm. I love allegory of the cave <laughs> mostly because it was one of the first ones I fully like grasped. Yeah, so. you have like a, a fondness. <laughs> yeah, for I have it. a fondness yeah. like attachment. Like I fully grasped that. Yeah. One. <laughs> Um, but there are also references to Greek myth. Uh, the name Morpheus comes from the Greek god of sleep and dreams. One of them, Greek Greek gods. There's lots. Uh, which makes it kind of funny to me that he's the one to wake Neo up. Um, he's the god of dreams, but he's also like, wake up, Neo. Uh, there's Persephone, who's the wife of the Merovingian. I, I, listen, I don't remember how to pronounce that anymore. It's been a while since I watched the movie. It might be Merovingian. Um, 
Uh, so Persephone is a reference to Persephone, the wife of Hades and ruler of the underworld in Greek myth. Uh, the Merovingian actually works as a stand-in for Hades for reasons that aren't really discussed That's until the, the next French, movie. French guy, right? Yeah, the French I guy. I love him. <laughs> yeah. Not in the, not in the, he gets, I the, love him. He gets, he gets better. <laughs> he does not get better, but he gets, he comes back. Uh, the reason these references are interesting to me is that they both make the themes front and center while also sometimes reversing expectations. And they situate the characters of this movie in conversation with these myths and with history. But what if these, the story was the original myth? I mean, we wouldn't know, right? That's yeah. the thing. That's the thing that interests me is is by invoking all of these things, the the creators of the movie are saying this is part of it. They're, yeah, it's really interesting. They're not. Um, they're not like they're. It's not like a retelling or anything. It's just literally like this is part of it. Um, it also raises some really interesting questions for me. Like, did Morpheus intentionally name himself after the Greek god? And if so, where did he learn about Morpheus? Yeah. And would he, like, if he learned about it in... I mean, I guess it could have just been oral history that was passed on. Mm-hmm. He might have learned it in Zion. He might have learned it while in the Matrix. We don't We don't really know. But it really interests me that he chose... Like, the implication being that he chose that name for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, where did he... Uh, is it... Po- it like it is again possible that he retained it from life in the matrix but why that name likewise why persephone does the oracle read socrates like is that why she has that quote or are these comments from the wachowskis that situate their film in the realm of mythology and i think that's really what it is for me is that they are by invoking you know socrates and and myth and all of these different things they're saying we want you to think about these things while you are thinking about our movie yeah you you should consider it in in conversation with one another. Um, and the idea of this film as mythology is really interesting because Roland Barthes, yet another philosopher, wrote an entire book called Mythologies, um, in which he discusses the fact that modern society, both then and now, uh, often sees itself as beyond mythology. Like mythology is something that ancient cultures created to explain things to themselves, like that, you know, you see lightning in, your sky, in the sky and you go, well, there has to be a reason for that. I bet it's a god throwing thunderbolts. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing, when I worked at Starbucks, seeing a person with a shirt that had a bunch of, like, Greek gods on it, and it said theology on it. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so cool. <laughs> As a person who's who's really into religious history, I was like, more of that. Yeah. Um, and according to Barthes, like, modern people see that we don't, like, we see ourselves as not needing that anymore. We have the answers. Um, But there are many contemporary mythologies. We just don't see them because we are mired in them. Mm -hmm. Um, The episodes on structuralism and mythology from Philosophize This are quite good at explaining these concepts and well worth a listen. Um, So if you're confused about what I'm saying, go listen to that. He does a great job explaining it. Um, He uses the example of something as seemingly apolitical as soap to explain this. Because, like, when you think of soap, you're not like, oh, politics fucking politics back at it again with the soap um unless you're thinking about fight club unless you think about fight club like we just generally speaking when we think of soap it's just a thing we use to clean right it's mm-hmm. that's just a tool that we use for that it is uh effectively just like nice smelling bubbles i think is what he says in the episode um but why do we emphasize being clean at all why is that a value that we all have to uphold no one wants to be stinky why because stinky smells bad why well things just smell bad do they yeah. Are you sure? Well, I think they smelled you know, bad when I was a baby. <laughs> you think that a lot of things smell bad that actually smell quite good to me. So who's right? You're a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> this um, is what was hard for me, though, because it felt like 
this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's difficult for me to look at at that as a a myth because like it is a real thing for me. Soap is a real thing. Sure. But being clean is a real thing. In my head is logical. Well, okay. Let's let's set aside soap for a minute and use another example that I know that you can resonate with. Deodorant. What about it? Deodorant for most of human history, we didn't really use it. We didn't Mm. need it. It wasn't until and and like shaving, diamond rings. Well, shaving is stupid. It is stupid. It is it is a like not a very useful thing to do. And it wasn't until marketing companies decided that they wanted to sell razors to women that we felt that we needed to shave our legs. And now shaving our legs is a norm. I guess where I guess okay, that makes sense. Uh, I think where I got hung up was the the mythology and myth and myth is part of mythology and for me when i think of mythology i'm thinking of something very different than myth but when you put when i think about that root word of it it makes more sense yeah myth mythology we often think of as like stories to Mm -hmm. explain phenomena when in fact like it is just a way of explaining culture a lot of the time dismissively Um, Hmm? dismissively almost if you're calling it a myth yeah there's there's a connotation to myth that it no longer exists and not everybody uses it that way intentionally but that's the connotation of the word um so when barth's is talking about mythologies he's talking about these same stories that explain our culture that we tell ourselves that are not necessarily rooted in anything right like the idea that i need to shave my legs is not real nothing will happen to me it is not dirty to not shave my legs or armpits or whatever it is itchy it is itchy but like it is not it is not dirty but our culture says it is dirty that is the mythology that we buy into Mm -hmm. not everybody of course but like the norm in our culture is for women to have shaved legs and armpits and for dishes to be clean and like there's nothing wrong with cleaning your dishes that's not what we're (laughs) arguing here it's just that there is uh, language and um, associations with cleanliness that have repercussions beyond a dish, right? He also talks about, in this episode, he talks about the fact that we use violent language to discuss soap. It destroys stains. It obliterates <laughs> grease. This is so interesting. Um, why do we use that violent language to talk about soap? There's an implication that we're destroying filth, right? What else constitutes filth in our culture and do we talk about it in the same way when you talk when you think about things like ethnic cleansing Mm -hmm. why do we use that word why does that word connect to something as innocuous as soap like this is where it starts to get very like complicated where it's like yeah it's just soap but the language we use to describe soap can be used to describe Mm. other things and those that's where the mythology comes in is it's about soap, but it's also not just about soap because there are all of these other connotations wrapped up in how we talk about something as innocuous as soap. Hmm, interesting. Um, the point here is that we like to think we're beyond mythology, right? Because, you know, we don't need stories about how lightning happens because we know how lightning happens. I don't know personally, but people Something know. about trees and grounds. I could look it up on Wikipedia. But I remember you know. learning it in school and literally zoning out and being and everyone talking about it. I'm like, I zoned out. Like, that's a weird yeah. memory to have. But like, I know it's something with the ground. It's positive, negative charges, et cetera, et cetera. I don't it's, know. It really is just Zeus. It's just Zeus. It's, it's all a big conspiracy. <laughs> um, so we like to think that because we have scientific answers or other forms of answers that we are beyond the need for mythology. But in fact, we believe all kinds of things simply because they are taught to us by our culture. 
Um, that includes things that seem at odds. Like if we take something as seemingly binary as being a Democrat or Republican, that A, doesn't seem like mythology because it's a real thing we deal with, right? And B, it seems like a natural state of the world. But why don't we have a third option? We have independent. We do, and they're not considered viable. Whereas in most other countries in the world, you can have lots of political parties. Yeah, I think if for independence, if they win like two states next time, they get like a bonus or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know it's exactly how it works. Something weird like that. Like they're they almost tried. Yeah. So like we we all like in the U.S. We often think of the political system as a binary of two parties. It's either Republican or Democrat. I come upon this a lot when I'm taking political surveys. Yeah. And they're like, "Are you a Democrat or a Republican?" And I'm like, "Neither." <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question, buddy. Um, yeah, it's my family has a hard time understanding that. My dad said the family has a hard time understanding that like Democrat is something different than yeah. liberal and left. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why those two at all? Why does this binary exist? And what does it say about our culture that so many of us do not question it? And the the thing to understand here is like, this is just one example of a thing we take as natural in our society when in fact it's not natural at all. It has nothing to do with nature. It's just the way that we've organized the world. And when we understand that that's fake, we are able to push back against it. Um, and of course, this is an entirely different reading. That's enough of mythology for now. Um, there is the biblical reading here, Love right? It. Neo is a great savior of Zion, a Hebrew word often used to refer to Jerusalem as well as the land of Israel. Uh, he dies and is resurrected, proving his divinity. Uh, you can even view the three main characters, Morpheus, Neo, and Trinity, ha, as the Holy Trinity, with Morpheus as the father, Neo as the son, and Trinity as the Holy Ghost. Um, I didn't dive too deep into that because honestly, I feel like that one's so obvious. You don't need me to explain it to you. It would have been a lot more interesting if they connected it to uh, much more like ancient religions where the where like this is where i find interesting a lot of the um christian um things that happened in the bible also happened thousands of years before so i thought it would have been really interesting if they connected to that where it feels like it's biblical but when you really look into it it's not i think Mm -hmm. that would have been really interesting just from my nerd history of religion point of view. yeah well i mean there's like the referencing the Nebuchadnezzar, the mm-hmm. ship, um, that's uh, referencing a king of yeah. the Neo-Babylonian Empire from long before Christ, like 600 years before. Um, so, like, there is kind of this invocation of of history as well and things that came before. But it is it does feel very Jesus, very Jesus resurrection to me. Um these references are intentionally imparting the film with meaning by situating it in conversations with both biblical work and like broader history and mythology and all those kinds of things. Um, whether it actually obtained that status, like the idea of being in conversation with those things and being considered along those kinds of things is not really up to the Wachowskis. Um, but it's clear that they were trying to talk about myth and myth making and situate their story as part of that. It's not just a story about these three people doing something right. It's a story in the vein of myth and the Bible. They're creating a myth for future generations. Right. In the same way that like if I talk about Artemis, then you're going to, you know, know what I mean they want me to be able to talk about Neo the same way. Or even just like the founding fathers. Right. Yeah. yeah. They become mythical figures. Yeah. Which they're not. Yeah. Um, any, any thoughts on that? 
section? No, it's all good. I love it. Okay, well, I hope you're ready for Baudrillard because it's time. Here we go. So it's let's Baudrillard time. Let's talk about simulacra and simulation. Uh, this is a 1981 book by Jean Baudrillard about the relationship between symbols, reality, and society and how they contribute to the idea of shared existence. So here's a couple de- definitions for you. Simulacra. A simulacra is a copy that depicts things that have no original or that no longer have an original, such as photoshopped images of celebrities. There's an original celebrity, right? But the goal of Photoshop is to depict an idealized version of this celebrity that does not exist. Hmm. Disneyland. Disneyland depicts things that do not exist, but evokes a feeling that they might have once. Yes. The perfect example of this is the Main Street. Oh, yeah. Where is that? Nowhere. Main it's Street, not Street USA. It's not real. It's depicting at once this idealized version of every downtown in small town America. Yeah. But it's not real, right? It's not it's not a real town. It's not depicting a real place. It is an imagine is a depiction of imagination. Hatsune Miku. <laughs> an idealized person, right? Doesn't exist. Uh reality TV, right? It's not real, but it is attempting to depict the real whilst not also while also not Sounds being sunset. real. Yeah, it's nonsense. Uh expensive jeans that come with holes in them. Why? <laughs> That's simulacra. It's trying to capture the it's trying to evoke the feeling of a well-loved pair of jeans without without being, being well-loved. a well-loved pair of jeans. It is an imitation. That's simulacra. Simulation is the imitation of the operation of a real-world process or system over time. Is that an NFT? <laughs> no. <laughs> Such as again, Disneyland. It is trying to simulate the real world over time but it is also not doing that yeah they pump in smells and everything right it's that the experience of disneyland is a simulation uh products and recipes said to evoke mother or grandmother's cooking right the idea of mother's cookies those aren't mother's cook my mom doesn't even like bake cookies ever my mom gets toll house yeah like cuts it up but the the what it's invoking there is the idea of caring and the love that is put into food. Food tastes better when there's love baked into it. Exactly. At the Mother's Cookies Factory. Um, placebos. <laughs> Even that is capitalism. <laughs> placebos in medicine. It's a weird example, but it's a simulation. It's a fake version of medicine that may or may not have an effect, etc. So and your mind might believe it. Exactly. Um, the argument that Baudrillard makes is that humanity has replaced anything real with simulacra and simulations and that we no longer live in reality, but a simulation of it. And he refers to this as hyper reality to Baudrillard. Um, that means that our lives are so saturated with imitation through simulacra and simulation that meaning no longer exists. Everything is mutable and false and therefore meaningless. I hate it. Um, I was thinking about this and I was like looking out my window trying to like say like trying to think about if I could think of any exceptions. And I was looking at my window and there's a bunch of trees out there. And I was like, well, a tree's real, right? But it was planted there. That's what I was. I was looking out my back window toward the green ah. belt. And I was like, oh, it's like a forest out there. And I'm like, it's like a forest out there. It's cultivated. They've put it up so that I can't hear the highway as loudly outside my house. So even what I think of as a forest is in fact not a forest. It is a simulation maybe if you go to like montana yeah there are some places but for the most part the things that we interact with on on a daily basis are imitations they are not real 
Even this podcast is not real. This pod- I've script this podcast. <laughs> like word for word. Yeah, I didn't script that part just not now. Not that part, no. But, <laughs> but a lot of times this podcast is scripted um, because I would lose my sanity if I tried to remember all of this about Baudrillard. Oh, God. Um, so what what he's saying again here is that meaning no longer exists. Everything is mutable and false. Therefore, it's meaningless. Um, Baudrillard is also building on the work of the semi- semioticians like Ferdinand de Saussure and Jacques Derrida. Uh, semiotics is where we get the idea of signs and signifiers, which we've talked about in the past, um, which also deals with the intrinsic meaning or lack thereof of things. Do you remember that conversation? Or should I explain it really briefly? Explain it again. So language is comprised of signs and signifiers um, or signifieds. Sorry, I got confused. Uh, the oh god, it gets it's hard. It's hard to explain. <laughs> Any word is only a representation of the thing. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. A cat. The word cat is not a cat, right? The cat is cat is the symbol of the cat. Yeah, cat is the symbol of an abstract cat. The cat I picture when I say cat is different from the cat you picture yes. when I say cat. That's the <laughs> that is the most surface level semiotics possible um the point of all of this is that we should uh, we are essentially being fed ideas about concepts like happiness personhood and so on that are not real because they are imitations of something else and we grow increasingly detached from reality the longer that we stay in this state um in the metaphor of the matrix taking the red pill is a means of seeing the fact that what you saw as real is in fact a simulation in a very literal sense in the movie right uh, much like learning about this theory and really spending some time with it. Because, like, if you think about this for the first time, it's Scary. like, woof. Yeah. I didn't want to know that. <laughs> Let me go back. Um, once you learn this, you can't unlearn it. And it changes the way you look at things, right? You aren't necessarily happier for knowing it. But you are living a more informed and potentially free life with that knowledge in your mind. I feel like when I was younger that I want to be free would have been really important to me. And now with the state of the world, I'm like, "Mm, I'd rather like, let me eat that steak, baby. (laughs) Yeah, let me eat that steak. Can uh, Because you know what? This even simulated reality sucks. So (laughs) I don't want to get worse. Um, So this is a quote from Rewriting Reality, Reading the Matrix by Russell J. A. Kilborn, who writes, Therefore, to see the code streaming down the monitor screen, as Neo does immediately following his liberation, is to be aware at least of the constructedness of the construct, infinitely more desirable than the state of ignorant bliss in which the average genocide of the Matrix lives, and to see the code as Cypher can as the images it encodes, blonde, brunette, redhead, is to occupy an already demystified position. Cypher deciphers the code. But the real trick, which only Neo ever masters, thereby realizing his potential as the one, is to turn the whole structure inside out and see the code as code from within the matrix itself. In this sense, then, Neo's trajectory is not simply from subject of experience to subject of knowledge, combined with belief in self. It is also a movement from subject... Sorry, I scrolled up and got confused. Um, It is also a movement from subject of narration as reader to narrating subject in a way none of the other characters can match. This is why at the film's end, Neo becomes the film's narrator, addressing the AI nemesis in a taunting phone call from a payphone inside the Matrix. So what makes Neo special is not just the prophecy about him as the one, but also his ability to see the code from within the Matrix. The other people are aware that it's there, right? Mm-hmm. They're aware of it. They're able to manipulate it. But it's Neo who is able to see it 
and interact with it and use it against the Matrix itself. Um, I don't know that the film gives us an explanation for why he has this unique power until the second movie, Mm -hmm. um, where we find out that he's part of this cycle of ones. Uh, I'm a little unsure as to whether that means he is created by the Matrix or just like guided by the simulation, but whatever, it really doesn't matter. Um, Even if he is influenced by the Matrix, we know that he's a person who questions reality already. He says as much in the movie, but he's also seen literally with simulacra and simulation by Baudrillard. Mm-hmm. He's literally holding that book. Um, <laughs> well, again, they're like, this is what it is, guys. Yeah. Um, Neo is obviously interested in seeing through the veneer of reality, which I think makes him more suited to be the person who not only sees the Matrix for what it is, a simulation, but is ultimately able to manipulate that. And he's a hacker, right? He knows that code can be manipulated, even within like his false uh life within the matrix the the simulation um he's aware that code can be turned around um in a funny way it actually reminded me of that part in john constantine hellblazer where constantine chides k mag for thinking small when he uses the intestines to view events happening elsewhere and he just takes over and uses the same intestines to rewrite what's happening he's like if you can look why can't you just change it And it reminds me a lot of that, actually. There were a lot of weird parallels with not Hellblazer specifically, but with Constantine the movie, and not just because Keanu Reeves is in both of them. Interesting. What came out first? uh, The Matrix would have come out first. Um, But, like, the idea, like, it's kind of a reversal. The idea, like, every, like, part of the movie of Constantine is that, and, like, I think Gabriel says, like, almost exactly this. He has, he believes he doesn't have faith Two different things Mm -hmm. he believes in religion he doesn't have faith um whereas most other characters have faith similarly in this movie he derives he derives power from knowing whereas everybody else merely has faith interesting um so yeah anyway that brings me to the next section um (laughs) which is about nihilism uh the chapter that neo hides stuff in because that's how we are introduced to the simulacra and simulation copy is they bring him a disc or something. I can't remember what it was. They and he some old disc. Yeah, he takes it and he hides it in his copy of Simulacra and Simulation. And the chapter he hides it in is the final chapter of the book by Baudrillard, which is titled On Nihilism. Um, a lot of times we want answers or guidance from philosophy, right? We we want these things to help us live better, more informed, more um, authentic lives. Answers. Yeah, we want we want an answer. But to my understanding, which is admittedly shallow and based on Reddit threads and Wikipedia, mm-hmm. I'm a busy girl, folks. <laughs> I, I can't read every every text. Um, Baudrillard was actually not asking us to do anything with this information. Uh, in fact, Simulacra and Simulation ends with this chapter titled On Nihilism, which is in fact the chapter that Neo hides the data disk mm-hmm. in. So nihilism, philosophically speaking, is... Belief feels oxymoronic, but we're going to go with belief because it was the best word I can think of. So nihilism is the belief that nothing has meaning, that the truth is unknowable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, it's acceptance that, you know, we don't know and we can't know. It's like um, philosophical pessimism. Um, It doesn't have to be pessimistic is the thing, though. Remember that graphic I posted in the... So I posted a graphic in the Discord as I was doing some research for this episode of... uh, it was titled nihilism and it was expectation and it was somebody looking very sad and saying nothing has meaning. And then the second part was somebody with sunglasses on against like a radical background. (laughs) (laughs) They they weren't doing finger guns, but, but like spiritually they were doing finger guns saying nothing matters. (laughs) 
Um, Baudrillard identifies himself and the systems he's discussing as nihilistic. Uh, he believes there is no meaning. The systems believe there is no meaning. And he suggests that the only response to systemic nihilism is violence and derision. So we should effectively say, fuck all that and be mad about it. However... Easy, easy. I'm always mad. <laughs> However, Baudrillard also seems resigned to the fact that these systems aren't going anywhere, but that the lack of hope that we'll ever get out of it is a good thing. Like, because nothing matters. Yeah. Um, shout out to a Reddit thread by a deleted user on the critical theory subreddit for explaining this in a way that I could actually understand. An extra shout out to Reddit user Kinder Demon, who really hit it home with this comment. This is how it made sense to me. So this, and I'll link to this in the show notes if you want to read the whole discussion. But uh, Reddit user Kinder Demon said, you can fight for positive change because you hate the world as it, as it is, not because you believe in a better one. You can eat the rich because you are hungry, not because God or morality approves of it, and they can't call you a bad person if you do. So it's the setting aside of meaning or morality or whatever, and an understanding that like you can fight for positive change because you hate the world as it is, not because you necessarily believe that it's going to do anything. Not, yeah. Um, I am and not kind of sums up like his feeling on like nihilism. I think so. I th- yeah. as long as far as I understand it, yes. Um, I have no idea. Like I'm, I'm not sure if this user is right. Like if this is a clear interpretation of what Baudrillard is saying, but it does make sense to me as an interpretation of that. Um, if nothing has meaning, then there is no morality or correct way of living. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we can reject those ideas entirely and say I'm doing this because I want to or because it is important to me, rather than because some outside force of morality or God of God or justice or whatever says that I should. And I think that's becoming much more popular. I think especially with the pandemic, Mm -hmm. people are choosing, no, this makes me happy. Mm -hmm. And so, fuck you, I quit. Yeah. (laughs) Then, like, of course, this this has, like, benefits and drawbacks. Like, Mm -hmm. there are some, like... There are some people who want to indulge things I super don't want them to indulge. Yes, it's true. You know, but at the same time, like, I don't think that Baudrillard is, like, advocating for, like, utter and complete chaos, um, I no. don't I don't think that and I don't really think I don't know that he's advocating for anything really um, I don't want to put words in his mouth <laughs> um, but well if he's advocating it then he's just making a simulation <laughs> and that's not that, well I guess he doesn't say that's not good no he, he very decidedly he, he doesn't he doesn't say a lot he brings a lot of he brings our attention to a lot of things but doesn't necessarily say whether these things are well he doesn't like he doesn't like the world that we live in. I think we can say that pretty clearly. He does not like it, but he does not think overthrow is possible. I think that the, I feel like that way with a lot of philosophers. They're not, like you said, giving answers, but they're just ex- like trying to explain the way in which world works, but doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it works. You know what? I, does that make sense? I think, yeah. Well, I think a lot of times the, the goal of philosophy is not to explain something, but to make us ask questions Yeah, and, and to think about things. Um, and I think that, that's what this movie does, right? Yeah. It encourages us to ask these questions. Um, so we've established what nihilism is. Uh, and the question for me becomes, is Neo rejecting the idea of nihilism? Uh, Baudrillard actually, re- he didn't like the movie as an interpretation <laughs> of his work. He said it was a misrepresentation, even though the, the Wachowskis actually invited him to work on the second I wanna movie. I want to know what he, he said no. What he decided wasn't... Like I'm not saying he's wrong, but I just, I would be curious to see what he was like. That's wrong. Well, I have I have a potential answer for you. Okay. Um. So my question is: Is Neo rejecting the idea of nihilism? Because I think that it, oh, I I, I don't think it was clear from the interview I read with Baudrillard about this that like it was the nihilism part that he felt they misrepresented. But 
Neo did cut a hole in that section of the book to hide stuff in it, right? Like that was the section that he chose to destroy to hide stuff in. And I think Okay. And okay. I think the idea that the movie misunderstands Baudrillard's philosophy, according to Baudrillard, is true. Like I think that that is true. Um, but I also wonder whether it is to some degree rejecting the conclusion that nihilism is like maybe not the answer, because I think Baudrillard is kind of avoiding suggesting that there is an answer. But maybe the idea that nihilism is the end point or end goal of this kind of thinking. I think that might be something think, the movie is rejecting. I think so, because if nothing mattered, then what's it matter that they're in the Matrix, right? Mm-hmm. What's the point of, you know, taking the red pill when it doesn't matter in the end anyways? Mm-hmm. I think, well, I think that nihilism like as as Baudrillard is discussing it you still want to know he's not advocating for ignorance he thinks that you should know that we exist in a world of simulacra and simulations so that would mean take the red pill um but he's saying that you can't escape it and if that interpretation that I read on Reddit is correct that doesn't mean we shouldn't fight it it just means that there is no escape there is no way out and I, I, I think that the Wachowskis are reject, rejecting the idea that there is no way out. I think they are saying there is a way out. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, so then again, the, apparently the Wachowskis actually asked Baudrillard to participate in the later movies and he said no. So I'm not sure, right? Because if they, if they were rejecting, you know, the end point of his philosophy, why would they ask him to participate in the movie? Um, but maybe it, they weren't, like, maybe they were pulling the car out of his book meaning like i don't really uh, maybe yeah it's hard to say do as you want with it <laughs> um but it does feel very much to me like the movies are rejecting nihilism um especially when you get into the matrix reloaded and you have the man who looks a lot like colonel sanders saying <laughs> something like that hope is a foolish human desire and this is a direct quote from baudrillard so he the the guy in the movie says hope is a foolish human desire or something like that and baudrillard wrote there is no more hope for meaning and without a doubt this is a good thing meaning is mortal appearances they are immortal and vulnerable to the to the nihilism. That is where seduction begins. There's almost like a conscious like parallel there, mm-hmm. I think, between between not necessarily like derision of meaning, but like you're looking for meaning and there's no point. Like, what is the point of looking for meaning? It doesn't matter. So like it's more important to live to experience the life that you're living. Yeah, or or just to be conscious of the fact that it's it's a simulation, to be conscious of you know, all of these lies that you're being fed and to do with that information what you will. Well, can you find a real meaning of life if you're being fed fake shit? Right. That That is the question. That's the real question. That's the real question. Um, so I don't know, you know, I do feel like the Wachowskis tend toward hopeful narratives, generally speaking, looking at Sense8, um, they didn't do them. They didn't do the movie, but they worked on, I think, the screenplay and they produced V for Vendetta, which is a... Um, a more, I think, hopeful interpretation of the story than the original comic. So I do feel like the Wachowskis tend toward these hopeful narratives overall, right? I feel like it'd be out of character for the Wachowskis to make something really nihilistic. Yeah, I would agree. Um, Especially after Sense8. Yeah. And it, it, I think it really does make sense for them to reject the idea of nihilism to su- and to suggest that there are other ways of being in the world, that there are other ways out of the systems that bind us, etc. Especially when you consider the fact that they're trans. Like, And I'm not going to talk too much about that in this episode so I'll, I'll discuss it just a little bit later on. Um, but like the idea of transness, not just in terms of being transgender, the, the also idea of like transhumanism or those various, you know, other forms of, of transcendence, right? Um, 
it make it makes sense to me that they would be interested in the idea of transcendence and being transgender. I mean, obviously they're transgender and um, transhumanism because like those are ways out of binaries that we are trapped in. Um, it tracks to me that they would say, actually, fuck nihilism. We're going to do it a different way. Um, so, you know, it's possible that they, w- they were arguing like, actually, fuck nihilism. There's a way. There's a better way. Or maybe they just really did misunderstand Baudrillard, <laughs> you know? Um, but I even think misunderstanding can lead to interesting ideas. So I really don't care whether they got it yeah. wrong, right? They're still very deliberate in their interpretation. If it's, you know, one of the the greatest lessons I ever learned in, in an English class was when it was finally revealed to me that, like, <laughs> the way that I interpret poetry is not necessarily wrong. It's just different. And I can, you know, get something interesting out of it, even if I interpret it wrong. I think that's one of the biggest, like, lessons of our podcast, because op- often we're like, we don't give a shit what the, what the, what the writer meant. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. So that's Barth. It's freeing. That's Roland Barth's baby. Fuck. <laughs> um, this is a quote from Back to the Future, The Humanist Matrix, which was by Laura Bartlett and Thomas B. Byers. Um, and this is going to be one where I'm going to read the quote to you and then I'm going to have to break down like every single word in it to make sense. So, <laughs> it was, yeah, it's one of the hard ones. Buckle up. Uh, finally, however, the terms of opposition on which the film is structured are neither capitalist ideology versus scientific socialism nor Marxist humanism versus postmodern cyborg socialism. Rather, it boils down to a struggle between human beings and machines over human subjectivity. That the AI prevails only by virtue of its capacity to separate consciousness from the materiality of the body suggests that in this world, human enslavement occurs only when and by virtue of the fact that subjectivity is configured as posthuman. In order to exploit the body, the AI I must create a simulacrum in which the human mind can interact and in which it is duped into believing that it still inhabits and senses bodily reality. But the fact that the mind must be so engaged for the system to work suggests that human beings have the potential to regain an outside position with relation to the matrix, to recognize the constructedness of their reality and change it. Thus, the film suggests the ultimate autonomy and supremacy of human consciousness intimating that the artificial system is still essentially allopoetic, allopoietic, allopoietic, I think is how I looked up how it was said, uh, or subservient to a humanity that remains in essence, if not in its existence at this historical moment, autopoietic. (laughs) So let's break that down so we can understand what Bartlett and Byers are talking about here. So human subjectivity, the state of being an individual person with thoughts and beliefs. Are the people of the Matrix subjects before they are unplugged? Interesting question. Are they? I don't think we could know because I don't think we can know how much real control they have over themselves, right? They have, so they have free will within the confines of the Matrix, right? They're presented with scenarios and so on and so forth. They have the will to choose because when they presented them with a world that was just pleasurable, they rejected it. Mm-hmm. Um, the hu- like humans desire choice, but choice is also what causes always results in the destruction of the matrix and the needing for it to be rebooted. So choice is important in order to construct a um, believable reality, but it also eventually causes the downfall of the matrix. So Bartlett and Beyer argue that the film is really about humans and machines fighting over the state of being human. I think we can get on board with that. Yeah. So post-human is the state of existing beyond being human. So things like cyborgs, um, you know, body augmentation, AI, right? 
Um, not AI as we know it today, like Siri in your phone, who doesn't really learn anything. She's really bad at her job. Truly. Um, but advanced AI, like the kind that we see in the film where they They're have... They're doing jobs. Not just that, because you can program a robot to do a job. Oh, like when it decides to kill someone? When it when it seems to have a consciousness of its own, a subjectivity yeah. of its own. Um, it's the, the one guy who's like, don't don't let your AI do this, or that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, What's his name? Are you thinking of Asimov? Yeah. Uh, Bartlett and Beyer argue that because the AI and the machines can separate their human consciousness, the thing that makes them subjects, from their body, the film suggests that human enslavement happens when subjectivity is seen as post-human. Or, uh, we are not free when our subjectivity is based on being separate from the body. So, the, the, the thing that it's saying there is that humanity is rooted in the body. If you take the humanity out of the body, the, the consciousness or whatever, you've caused a problem it's a with soul. humanity. It's, it's like a soul. It's a soul, but it's also not a soul. A soul is a way to think about it. Um, but it's not, it's not uh, necessary. Human subjectivity does not necessarily exist after death in the way that the implication of a soul mm. does. Um, it's like everything that we, I think we had this, we did that philosophical experiment maybe for the good place episode where it was like, if all of my body oh, is yeah. destructed down to atoms and then reconstituted on another planet, am I still me? I thought about that a lot while reading through the, reading through the outline yeah. because I still believe that it's not. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. Um, so Bartland, yeah. So Bartland Beyer arguing that again, just to reiterate here. Um, we are not free when our subjectivity is based on being separate from the body, which is what's happening in the matrix, right? They are, they are not connected to their, bo- well, they are connected to their bodies, but their, their consciousness is being projected into a different place. Is it, so it's the being separated. Yes. You're separating from your other half. Sort of. Yeah. Okay. And you have to have the two. Yes. They are meant to be together. This actually puts the infamous Matrix Reloaded orgy in a new light to I me. This part. Uh, it's not gratuitous sex. It's showing the people of Zion thriving in their human bodies, rejoicing in the union of their consciousness with their body, which had previously been denied to them. Right. They'd only felt ex- they'd only felt um simulations of pleasure they had not felt actual bodily pleasure because they had never engaged with another person with their real body um that's freedom in the eyes of the movies not Mm -hmm. sex necessarily but the connection between personhood and the body and that's what's expressed in that scene like yeah it's kind of weird but like this it's this very like joyous moment of dancing and sweating and touching people we know Wachowskis love that they do and you know what who can blame them like this I think it's it's a really wonderful scene even as I'm kind of like okay (laughs) but like I love the fact that they're rejoicing by like making music and touching each other and being very present in their physical bodies because that's not something that they have had access to yeah I I like I, I would agree it totally puts a new a new light it just it feels very like almost rebellious yeah yeah exactly and i think it's easy to look at that kind of scene and be like gross but also like i mean it's very human to want to dance and touch other people um like and and sex is sometimes an extension of that like and it's also okay just to have a horny scene you know just a horn dog it didn't scene. D- it didn't do it for me no especially with like intertwined with neo and trinity having sex i'm like this is awful this is <laughs> i've never not- seen two people have sex that's the this is the least sexy thing i've ever seen <laughs> um really pulls you right out yeah but like the the scene of everybody dancing and that kind of thing i was like okay you know this it's kind of a weird expression of it but i like it um and now we'll talk about allo and autopoietic 
Uh, Allo means different. Auto means the same. And poietic means the creation of. So an allopoietic system creates something other than itself. You can think of like an assembly line, right? People working on an assembly line putting together a car, for example. That would be allopoietic. Um, and an autopoietic system creates the same thing as itself, such as biological cell reproduction. It When it reproduces, it recreates itself. Like clones. Yeah. Well, clones generally don't clone themselves. Until they get really smart. Until they get really smart. Um, so Bartlett and Bayer are saying that the film suggests that human consciousness is the ideal because it creates itself, even if that isn't true at the very moment of the movie because the machines handle breeding for humans. Um, more broadly, I think what they're arguing through a variety of different means is that humanity and all of its facets are at the center of the film, not the question of what it means to be human, which is what we often see in stories about humans and AI. Um, in this case, the film is not really interested at all in the AI and is interested in freedom and in truth. Which I, why well, I like the Animatrix mm-hmm. because I am interested in in the the machines. Like I am interested in their story and how they got there because their freedom is just as important, isn't mm-hmm. it? So, I mean, I think the Animatrix was really really effective at introducing the like humans fucked up. Humans yeah. did bad things. And yeah. I think that was something that was missing from the narrative of the first movie. Yeah. The, the question of how how did we get here? Um, and it makes it more interesting to look at um, both the first movie and the second and reloaded and say like, okay, there's an element here of like, the machines are wrong for doing this, but also like, is the way we treated them post this or pre this apocalypse any better? Like yeah. we were essentially treating them as slaves for our amusement and that kind of thing. So like, is it is it really better? Yeah. Anytime they talk about and this is what I like about the older movie or the newer movies, like when they talk about the like the experience of the machines, I think it's so interesting because as as you watch it in the first one, it really does feel like nothing matters because what are they doing? Nothing. Yeah. They're just farming humans and like what's the point? You don't see any like what makes I guess you could say like humanity, you could say, or like what the personhood. Yeah. What is their pleasure that besides, you know, charging up? Mm-hmm. I mean, is existence itself not a reason to exist? I don't know. <laughs> most things, it feels like it with those machines. That- well, I mean, most things on Earth are interested in continuing their existence, whether or yes. not we can say they're sentient. Sentient. Look at a virus. Like, does a virus experience pleasure? But the but the but the um, is a virus. Um, if you ask sentient, what a question! That's a real fucking question <laughs> in science, Mary. Okay, okay, okay. But the, but that's the point. Like, I don't think that I think that the general agreement is that a virus is not quite sentient but a virus has we can't say it's a desire a a virus has an imperative to replicate itself Mm -hmm. right is that not enough i guess i don't know if it's i just feel like when when you add the animatrix in there and you see that there's a deliberate like rebellion Mm -hmm. it makes me watch the first one and like the way in which the the machines like live their quote-unquote life feel very different Mm-hmm. Like they've almost gotten away from that. Well, okay. So this is this is the the question that I'm getting at with this idea of like, um, do they need do they need a reason mm-hmm. to stay alive? Is like almost every creature on this planet does not have it, its main purpose on Earth is to replicate itself. I understand that. 
I totally I totally agree with you. I think the the difference is I'm saying it makes it not as interesting to me. Sure. Yeah. But I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I'd like the Animatrix because it did give me that context. So you would not find it interesting. Like, does does machine life have sanctity if its purpose is to replicate itself? I don't I don't know. That's what I'm that's what I'm I don't think so. You don't think so? I I just like the act of like seeking out something like pleasurable. What about animals? Animals seek out things that are pleasurable. They do, but their primary drive is replication. Are they sentient though? Animals? I mean, they teach like there is like that study where like they teach like the gorillas to speak, but when they actually try to make them make a sentence, they don't actually make a sentence. They're not making real. We might be words. we might be in disagreement about the definition of it's. I think we're actually looking at sapiens rather than sentience. Are animals sentient? Okay, so many animals are sentient, which means that they have the capacity to experience positive and negative feelings. Okay, okay. Are I would agree with that. Yeah, animals sapient. Humans are sapient, hence homo sapiens. Okay. There are animals that are sentient and sapient. So what is the definition of sapient then? They have some kind of intellectual capacity for understanding, thinking, reasoning, and knowing. Is it going to give me examples? Probably not. Humans. Uh, whales and dolphins. Uh-huh. I would expect a dolphins. Um, this is Carrots, crows, real dogs. Real deep in my head. I guess like the thing is like... It, It'd be really interesting if there was an animal uprising, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I think and that's that's something I didn't get into this outline, but maybe will for the next is the idea of factory farming. Yeah. So I think that's but like that for me is why the Animatrix was really interesting because it gave me something to hold on to like and connect with. Whereas just the machines running through their daily life being machines, I didn't connect with that. And so I was forced to connect with the other side like Neo and I don't connect with that either. I think so. This is my thing. I think the movie would have been really interesting if it did go out of its way to make us connect with non-sapient machines it does later with non-sapient ones oh i guess not i don't know i have i like the last one they i think there's an attempt Mm -hmm. but i think that they're sapient we'll have to yeah anyways um it's just it's it was an interesting thing as i'm watching it i watched the animatrix and the ones that i connected most with were the with i mean i love a good uprising and rebellion (laughs) uh even though they just destroy those people and the cats (laughs) <laughs> there were so many cats in the Animatrix. Did there you were. Know, there was, I think there was one in every single one. Oh, really? Or, or not, maybe not. There was an animal, I think, in every single one. Because mm-hmm. there was one, the one that I really liked had that weird monkey thing. Yes. I didn't like that. <laughs> you didn't like the weird monkey. I think it was like a sloth or like a bush baby. I think it's a bush baby. Interesting. Not into it. Um, do you have anything else to say about whatever we were just talking about? It's a lot. I'm st- like, I. It's one of those things. Like, I'm still thinking about it, and that's what makes the movie like, yeah, good. I wouldn't say like it's a good movie, but that's what makes it like good for society. I think, I think it's a pretty good movie. I don't like it, but I think it's. I think it's pretty good. I don't know. I think it's. I think it sets out to achieve goals and it largely achieves those goals it does it in a unique style i guess if you're doing like a logical like this is what makes a good movie as opposed to me being like oh, i think this is a good movie then yeah i could agree with that i i don't i don't really like it i like i, I just tr- <laughs> truly you can dislike good things yeah and that's that's how i feel about it so i'm like i think this is a pretty good movie that just doesn't do it for me um let's talk about determinism and free will <laughs> 
Uh, so free will is the theme throughout the series so far, but it really comes to the forefront in The Matrix Reloaded, especially in Neo's conversations with the with the Oracle. And I can't remember if they discuss the idea of free will outright. They probably do. I, I just forgot for some reason. Um, but there are a couple of layers like compounding the, the idea of free will within the movie. I think they do. They probably do. Um, one, within the Matrix, they definitely aren't free because they don't even know that they're not living in the real world, right? Like, can you be considered free if you have no idea that you are living in a simulation? The movie seems to be saying no. Yeah. Um, they have choice within the confines of that world, but because they don't know that it's a simulation, they cannot make informed choices. To reiterate, that mirrors the ex- experience of living in our world without realizing how much of it is constructed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, two, even when you take the red pill and you learn that the matrix is a simulation, you still have to grapple with the existence of the Oracle who can see the future. So if it's possible to see the future, can there really be freedom? Do this we have free will? My, my note in here, I took it down, but it was the mind blown emoji. Yeah. I'm just like, there's too much going on here. <laughs> it breaks in my brain. Yeah. It's hard to think about. If the Oracle knows the vase is going to fall, does she cause the fall by mentioning it? Is she remarking on the single path Neo is going to take? Or is there only one possible pl- path that Neo is capable of taking? It's, I mean, my first my knee-jerk reaction is that there is real choice because there's multiple of the ones because I guess he fucks up I don't know what you could say um, but then it's like well maybe he was supposed to mm-hmm. it's very complicated um, the second question that we had there is one of determinism a philosophical view that events are in some way predetermined and that doesn't mean like explicitly outlined it just means that in some way events are predetermined that can mean the very extremist views of calvinism that we discussed in our episode on the witch which is called active divine determinism god actively shapes the destinies of all people meaning that there is no free will and your destination in the afterlife is determined by god that is like pretty fucking extreme as far as (laughs) determinism goes there are also less restrictive kinds of determinism that situate the presence in the the present in the context of the past and future so the choices available to you now are dictated by all the choices that came before or that the choices available to you are dictated by existing structures etc so that's still determinism for me to say like uh determinism isn't real because i can choose if i'm going to have cereal or eggs for breakfast like that still is relying on a past series of events that led to me having both cereal and eggs but not french toast or waffles which were the better choice which were the better choice um i had eggs for breakfast incidentally um anyway um that is still determinism right the fact that like the past has in some way dictated the choices available to me today today this is scary um Again, this is as true of the Matrix as it is of the real world. We like to think we have free will and that we're not the and that we are the masters of our own destiny, but our choices are always limited by the context we live in, right? We don't actually have complete and total free will. I want to live in a beautiful old Victorian home with an extensive garden, but I am limited by the amount of money I make, which is determined as much by me taking a job with a particular salary as it is the salary the job is offering, which is dictated by the industry, the income of the specific business I work for, the like surrounding interpretation of what my job and labor are worth right generational wealth yes there's there's like a ton of factors that contribute to this one single thing that's why the american dream is fake yeah 
Um, if I'm, we're all in a simulation, <laughs> if I want to go live in the woods as a hermit, that is technically not legal unless I own the land, right? If I want free healthcare, I cannot have it. Um, I can choose between six different streaming services, all owned by probably bad people who wouldn't hesitate to sell their grandmother. So I have the illusion of choice, but it's choices dictated by other people. I don't have free will, right? I don't have the will to just like watch any show I want without choosing from these six services. Um, we have choice, but only the choices given to us within the existing frame existing framework, which is really just the matrix, right? <laughs> I hope the audio software keeps that big sigh. I hope so. Um, so this is a quote from Back to the Future, The Humanist Matrix by Lisa Bartlett and sorry, Laura Bartlett. I don't know where I got Lisa and Thomas B. Byers who write, while the condition of life in the future is completely passive for all but the select few who have escaped the state of battery inflicted on them by the AI, the virtual world at least gives them the illusion of freedom of choice. If not a real resistant agency, then at least... Sorry, the text is kind of small. Then at least some digital wiggle room. Sci-fi fans will recognize Matrix as William Gibson's term for cyberspace, defined in Neuromancer as, quote, a consensual hallucination experienced daily by billions, unquote. For Gibson, this hallucination is merely a sensory and spatial representation of stores of information. In the film, however, the hallucination is thematized. Thematized? Whatever. Uh, it not is not only an electronic illusion, but also an ideological one. It is perhaps in pinpointing society's need to buy into the illusion of free agency and individual autonomy that the Matrix is most disturbingly accurate. The Matrix met metaphorizes our willingness to fantasize that the freedom rhetoric of e-capitalism accurately reflects our reality and our propensity to marvel at our technological innovations, even in the face of mass alienation and social malaise. So as Bartlett and Byers point out here, the shared hallucination in the Matrix is not just the simulation they exist in, but also the idea that they have free will and autonomy, right? Like the, it's not, yes, they believe in the simulation, but they also believe they have free will and they super don't. Um, they don't, even if the world seems to contain a ton of choices, like they still don't have free will. Uh, and this is where some of my frustration in the response to the film comes from, because a lot of people took away from it, whoa, what if we're living in a simulation from it? But like, we are. So does that mean when we do VR, it's really Inception? It's a simulation of a simulation. Inception. Mm -hmm. um, the Matrix is probably not real as such. Um, I say probably because simulation theory is its own thing that I find extremely tedious. Again, because it just feels like religion for tech bros. Um, but it most certainly is real and that we too live in a world of simulations that benefits from our believing that we have free choice within it. It's okay that we have a broken two-party system because we can always choose which party to vote for, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's okay that our media is run by six distinct companies because we can choose which of the six we want to watch and all of that available programming, right? <laughs> We have access to the internet with tons of information. So long as we pay large fees to one of a handful of companies that could provide access for free, but choose not to, right? Again, we have free will, quote unquote, but it's always limited by forces outside of our control. I wish more people would understand this. So when people make decisions that are not necessarily great decisions, people are like, well, they have free will. Mm -hmm. They could, but they, but like so many outside sources are like, affecting the choice that is it there's a reason that bribery and extortion well bribery is not necessarily a crime but extortion is a crime blackmail is a crime 
because like it's it's the illusion of choice. If I put a gun to your head and I say, you have to watch Selling Sunset (laughs) and you have the choice to say no, right? You have the choice. You have the choice. So you have free will. No, you're being threatened and coerced, right? Like it's not the same as free will. It's like when women stay with abusive right. partners. There's so many factors there that go beyond They have the they have the free will to leave. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. There's there's so many factors that go into that besides just like the single thing happening in a single moment. Um, and this raises the question within the matrix and within our real world of if there can be such a thing as free, w- free will at all, even once you take the red pill. And this is a philosophical question. And as usual in philosophy, there's no clear answer. Uh, there are kind of two distinct camps. Uh, compatibilism, which believes that free will can work with determinism in some way or another. And incompatibilism, incompatibilism, sure. Uh, which believes that it cannot. So within incompatibilism are three subsets. There's hard incompatibilists who believe that free will is incompatible with determinism and indeterminism. That Uh, makes sense. Libertarianists who believe that determinism isn't complete and free will might exist. Okay. And hard determinists who believe determinism is complete and free will does not exist. I hate that. That would be, I think, more in line with Calvinism. Yeah. Um. Looking at the Matrix, we don't yet have a clear answer if there is one to be found. Uh, The Oracle really throws a wrench in the idea that the universe as a whole, not just the Matrix, might allow free will, right? Like, it's it's hard to... Um, to establish that free will can exist in the same world that the, that the oracle exists. It just doesn't, at least for me, doesn't compute. Does not compute. Um, if she knows what's going to happen and sometimes speaks about it, doesn't she potentially influence the direction of events? If she can see the future, the future is in some way determined, even if nobody knows they are on a specific, specific path. <laughs> Unless she's lying. Or unless, as a program, she's just very, very good at algorithmic predictions. Possible. Which is not impossible. We know she tells or strongly hints to Neo that he is not the one for XYZ reasons, um, but he just ends up being the one anyway, right? So was she lying or did she not know? The latter means that she can likely affect the future. The Sorry, the former means that she can likely affect the future. The latter means she's not able to totally predict the future. Or she was like, you can't know. And that's what makes but you that's, the one. But that still means that she knew. Which, again, throws a wrench in the idea of free will. Bring out that uh, head-blown emoji again. <laughs> um Both are interesting interpretations, and the fact that we don't know, at least at this point, makes the series a stance on determinism and free will really debatable. And I like that. Yeah, it kind of also, like, it feels... it. So when we started the discussion of nothing matters, that's scary. Now, when you bring this into it, nothing Nothing matters matters. feels free. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. Um. And I, I like this idea. I like the fact that we aren't sure, like, is free, does free will exist? I don't know. Um, I think that that is a much more interesting takeaway than, but are we living in a computer simulation? But you have the free will to make that question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anything else to say about determinism? Uh, it's just, it's just, I mean, it's going to come back later. It's just a lot. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like you just go in a circle and the circle closes in on itself every time you make a pass. And, right. Uh, and eventually you have to throw your hands up and go watch Selling Sunset. Yeah, exactly. That's your free will. 
Um, so the last section I have titled, things may have gotten out of hand here. <laughs> um, I think what the Wachowskis set out to do with The Matrix is genuinely interesting and revolutionary. I genuinely believe that. Uh, and we'll talk more about that, I think, in our next episode. But I do feel, too, like the shakeup these movies cause in the general cultural sphere is buck wild and not always in a good way. No. Sometimes in a bad way. Sometimes in a very bad way. <laughs> Um, so naturally, we're going to have to talk about what the red pill is and what red pilling has come to mean in a cultural context. Um, in the movie, to take the red pill is to learn a truth you can't unlearn. More specifically, it's to learn that the world you know is a simulation and the real world is extremely unfriendly and, and dangerous place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but as I'm sure we know, seeing the words red pill just out in the wild now means something radically different. Um, the red pill, and this is kind of what popularized a particular use of red pill. The red pill is a subreddit named after the pill in the movie and is now at least dedicated to what is generally seen as pickup artists and men's rights activist tactics and causes, etc. Um, I took a look at it while writing this and I fear for what it's going to do to the Reddit emails I get. Um, so I, again, I took a look at the at the red pill subreddit while watching while writing this outline. Um, and the top discussions as I was looking are field reports about how many girls a man is hooked up with using these tactics. Another field report about having sex with somebody's girlfriend, someone struggling, struggling with their friends with benefits, having a boyfriend, etc. Um, apparently, the community is now being subject to more scrutiny on Reddit because I guess they've all kind of like packed up and left. So there's like a strong chance that the popular rhetoric was worse up until a few days before I was writing this outline, like literally six days before I wrote, I worked on this part of the outline. They're like, we're all picking up and leaving. So they go to a red, they have a separate forum, which isn't subject to Reddit's scrutiny. It's like an eight chan. I mean, it, it depends on how you look at it. Cause a lot of the appeal of like the Chan sites is the depravity. Whereas Mm. men's rights activists and pickup artists, like, a lot of them, and I'll get into this, like a lot of them are like genuinely lonely people who are looking for camaraderie and like connection and they're finding it in, you know, a, a cesspit. They found it in the sewer, unfortunately. Um, and okay, so this is the thing. It's really tempting to just jump straight to demonizing men here, but I don't want to do that. Um, I think pickup artist tactic- tactics are shameful, manipulative bullshit, but there is a real culture of loneliness here, and it looks like men are finding companionship by commiserating. I do not like the tactics, to be clear, nor do I like the ideology that comes out of these spaces. I want to make They're that a- bad. I do. I want to make that abundantly clear. I do not like it. I do not approve of it. It doesn't. It does not meet with my standards. Um. But I feel uncomfortable pointing and laughing at men who struggle to find relationships because that's exactly what leads them to these spaces. Yeah. Right? Um, there is so much misogyny and hatred in this community, but the radicalization of men often stems from loneliness and disenfranchisement. So when we criticize these groups, I want it to be with the understanding that the groups exploit the effects that patriarchy has on men. Mm-hmm. Patriarchy causes this feeling of disenfranchisement and like closed offness and that kind of thing. And then groups like this exploit that. And that doesn't absolve men of responsibility, to be clear. But I want any conversation we have on this topic to amount to more than LOL men bad. Yeah. Right? I don't want to say that men are by nature emotionally stunted or violent or any of those things. That's patriarchy talking, right? That's a different form of red pill. That like that's a different form of blue pill, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, 
that disclaimer out of the way. The red pill community is built off of the idea that to take the red pill is to understand and accept that it is actually women who hold all the power in society and men are being crushed under their heel unless they reclaim the sort of hyper-masculine take-what-you-want mentality that men of previous generations had. Um, This is a response to a wide variety of things. Feminism, the Me Too movement, women having more autonomy in general society, awareness about rape culture, a growing understanding of patriarchy and how it affects us all, etc. It's complex. It is not, when you really think about it, a poor use of the term red pill, right? Considering that it is a revolutionary, earth-shaking worldview shift. It's just also not true. Yeah. (laughs) But how can you prove it when we live in a world of Baudrillard simulations, right? (laughs) Uh, How can anyone be expected to not buy into some form of bullshit? We are all just buying into (laughs) different forms of bullshit. Yeah. Nothing nothing matters or nothing matters. I don't believe, and this is what I want to make, one thing I want to make clear here. I don't believe the Wachowskis are to blame for this adoption of the red pill. Um, They did not invent misogyny and their movie does not indicate that the red pill is to show you how women run the world. But I think there is a failure on the part of the movies that we have seen so far, which is to take the message of the Matrix out of the film and into the real world. I I think also the the movie hits a very specific demographic of dudes that are like, where Trinity is a good is a good female character. She I had to strong save this character. I had to save this for the next episode. But yes, we will talk more about. Well, we'll talk. We'll touch briefly on Neo here, but I do want to talk more about Neo as a savior and that yeah. kind of thing, and who identifies with Neo in the next episode. But um, even that idea of like Trinity being a good female character, or someone like uh, what's her name from Alien, like the, these are very specific, yeah, very specific ways in which strong females should act. Yeah, it, I feel like like is you're not acting like this strong female character. See, I do like women. Right. I like strong women. You are just a problem, right? Um. So yeah, I, it's not so much like I don't think the Wachowskis are to blame in any sense for this, but I do feel like had the movie maybe done more to take the matrix out of the matrix and into the real world that like we live in you and I and everybody listening to this, um, that it may have been more effective. Um, I am reluctant to lay the blame for that entirely at the Wachowski's feet, but I think it is worth remarking on, right? I'm not going to say that they have utterly failed, but I think it's worth remarking on that the movie does not quite make that jump for me. I think it'd be really hard for them to have like predicted something like this. Oh, absolutely. So like to, to be like, well, we need to make sure that people don't. I think they were more like red pill, right? Yeah. I mean, how could you anticipate this? Yeah. Um, so this is another quote here from Rewriting Reality, Reading the Matrix by Russell J.A. Kilborn, who writes, um, but it remains a piece of exemplary, na- exemplary narrative fiction by upholding rather than com- compromising or effacing the distinction between the real and the fictional within its own narrative frame. And this is where the Baudrillard Baudrillardians in the audience go astray. The film's reflexive narrative strategies have the very opposite effect from a laying bare and exposing of the artifice of the story's fictionality. They collude in a seeming paradox to maintain the illusion or semblance of fictional reality demanded by the science fiction genre. The default position for the viewer is thus the highly pleasurable one of mystification as far as the relation between reality and Matrix goes and in terms of the possibility of identification with Neo as hero on a journey of self-discovery. So essentially what Kilborn argues here is that by using the distance of science fiction and film, it's easy for viewers to come away from the Matrix not questioning the ways that they live, that they themselves live in a similar confusing state of unreality. 
I think the evidence is there and clear that in addition to telling a cool story about machines, the Wachowskis were trying to get us to look at the things that we consider to be true and self-evident, right? I think that that is like, it's everywhere all over the film. Um, Why did so many people not get that? How did we get from what Lily Wachowski has made clear is a trans narrative? And I will link to this in the show notes because... Didn't it take her a while to like be like, yes, it is a trans narrative? It took her a while to... Well, this is talking specifically about Lily. I can't yeah. speak for Lana. This was an interview with Lily. Um, she, she said essentially that they were laying the seeds of this mm. throughout the first Matrix. Um, but not everybody got it. And so I'm going to link to this interview in the show notes that you can watch. And we will talk more about the idea of the matrix as a trans narrative next time. I wanted to hold off on that specifically because from what I remember of what you said about the new one, they make explicit reference to the theory that it is a trans narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to keep that, like have that be part of the discussion Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and uh, the reason I wanted to talk about the, the reason I wanted to talk to or to link to Lily talking about it specifically, um, I know death of the author, but I'm cis and I genuinely missed a lot of the things the Wachowskis mm-hmm. dropped in the movies about trans identity. And I can't imagine how much easy it was to to like not get those in the 2000s, right? When that was something that was looked at completely differently, yeah, just wrong. Yeah. So how did we get from what Lily Wachowski has made clear as a trans narrative to MRAs to Elon Musk and and to Ivanka Trump talking about being red? <sighs> pilled and Lily Wachowski responding fuck both of you um and well I think that's one of the themes of the movie isn't it like it's hard to have your eyes opened it is hard to confront that the reality that you think you're living in is is simulated too it's also sometimes hard to understand that things like white privilege and patriarchy are real and we want to invent narratives that make those things not true so that we can stay comfortable Absolutely. And I think that's what's happening a lot, like politically as mm-hmm. well. It's almost like you didn't open your eyes. You just closed them even more. Yeah. You put a sleep mask over. <laughs> You've instead of, you know, like the idea of transitioning from the red pill as it's depicted in the movie to an eye opening thing to the red pill subreddit. It's like you you didn't open your eyes so much as you cast your eyes around for anything that was going to be a life raft to let you continue to think of yourself as victimized. Um, What I'm getting at here is that we are constantly being offered red and blue pills, right? Every single day of our lives, we are being offered red and blue pills. And many of us are taking the blue pills while telling ourselves we're taking red Mm -hmm. because it's easier to believe that we are always the heroes. Like the denial of white privilege is taking the blue pill. You can see this really well in like the people who are very into QAnon and like Mm -hmm. um, specifically if you look at the the guy who went to go and shoot up the pizza place. Right. um, Because there was nothing there and he still came away with like, no, there was something there. Yep. Or the HBO show that clearly showed the one guy is Q Mm -hmm. and none of them will talk about it. Mm -hmm. Even though like there are people in that movie who were are in the Q movement and it's like they won't talk about it because it doesn't it's not their reality. It doesn't, not the reality. It doesn't fit their narrative. Exactly. They yeah. they won't open their eyes. It's so frustrating. And this like this happens every day to all of us. This yeah. isn't exclusively a right wing phenomenon. Like every day, sometimes we have to close our eyes to something that we don't want to acknowledge. Especially now. Yeah. There's there's always like all of us are are interacting with this. There, I don't think there's a single person on this fucking earth who can say that they are totally aware of everything that they do 
and they never they like they always take the metaphorical red pill. I don't think there's a single person on God's green earth that can say that. <laughs> um, but more people are trying. Yeah, I think I think that's good, and I think that it's it's a good thing to you know, I, like okay, for example, I am not a I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not vegan. Um, I'm aware of the horrors of the fast yeah. of the factory farming industry. I do still eat meat on occasion. I go to Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> we were having a whole conversation before we started recording. Starbucks is bad. About Starbucks union busting. But it's like the, it's like better than a lot of the coffee stands around me. I've tried them. Mm-hmm. They're gross. They're consistent. The Starbucks is, if nothing else, consistent. Yeah. Um, or they're full of like just so much sweetener. Consistent in its badness, in my <sighs> opinion. The coffee tastes bad to me. The... But, you know, we, we're all making these kinds of decisions. I have to go to Target later today. I know Target is maybe, maybe marginally better than Walmart, a place I will not shop. It's it's bullshit. Like that is that is self-delusion. The idea that I that that Target is better than Walmart. Why is it better than Walmart? I don't know. The lights in there don't make me feel like dying. There aren't as many. um as many people talking about how poorly uh, Target is treating their work environment. I didn't watch an entire documentary about Target. Yeah, but I will say I worked for Target for a hot second. I hated it. I quit. I just stopped showing up. And then they called me a week later and they're like, can you come in early? I was like, I literally wouldn't show up for a week. <laughs> Anyways, part of my training was anti-union stuff. Yep. And I, I literally sat there with, there was just one other kid and I couldn't believe what I was watching. I mean, this is me at like 22, mm-hmm. if that. And I was like, I looked at him like, they're showing us anti-union stuff. That's so weird. And he's like, meh. Yeah. And I was like, this is weird. It was so weird to me. And like, that's bad. Yeah. But that is me taking the blue pill when I go to Target later yeah. today to pick up some stuff that I need. Especially if you end up buying any of their pride stuff. I won't do that because it's, it's always cute. ugly. Actually, there's some overalls that I really like that mm. are really cute. And there's a, a button up shirt that I think is really cute. Um, but yeah. Yeah. it's That's me taking the blue pill and choosing to believe that somehow Target is better than Walmart. They both fucking suck. I'm going to swallow a horse blue pill um, in a couple of days when I go to Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going to just be drowning in them, this especially with all their pride merch out. Yeah. This isn't like, this isn't a condemnation of doing that. And it, it also isn't a tacit endorsement of saying, well, nothing matters. So it's okay to shop at the union busting Target, right? Like, it's not that either. But you you have to be aware so that you don't continue to dilute. Like, if I can delude myself about that, what else am I deluding myself about? You know, mm-hmm. what other blue pills am I swallowing unconsciously? At least I should be consciously swallowing. <laughs> um, so, you know, here's the question for me. What could the Wachowskis have done to avoid this? Right. Like not just the not the formation of the red pill. There's nothing. I don't think they could have done anything about that. But the idea that so many people took away from this movie, what if we're living in a simulation and not we are living in a simulation? I wonder if they relied too heavily on philosophy. Well, they literally put simulacra and simulation right there in the movie. Like but physically present. But I think when he people hear simulation, I don't know if they're thinking, oh, that's a philosophy. Well, I mean, they put his name on the cover. 
I just don't trust a lot of people to be like, that's, well, that's a the real thing. person. That's the thing. You're, you're jumping my, you're jumping oh, sorry, ahead. Sorry, it's sorry. okay. You, you cannot always control how a message is going to be received. And I don't think they're to blame, right? Nor no. do I th- have concrete answers as to how they could have avoided this. Cause you shouldn't have to dumb down your movie. Right. <laughs> I think, I think, and I mean, like, the movie is pretty clear <laughs> in my opinion. I agree. <laughs> it's pretty clear. Um, there will always be bad faith readers or readers who don't want to engage with the material be- beyond what they want to see in it, which is typically themselves as the heroes. There are some really interesting readings of this movie as a white savior narrative, which is doubly interesting because oh, Keanu Reeves, as we discussed in our Constantine episode, is native and Hawaiian, sorry, native Hawaiian and Chinese, as well as English, Irish and Portuguese. So he's mixed race. Um, so reading this as a white savior narrative is fascinating just just fascinating and it's i'm not even gonna say it's wrong right uh-huh like a lot of people read keanu reeves as white and mm-hmm. i don't think like you should be informed right but like how is he constructed in the movie there's a really great um movie on netflix i think it's called always be my baby and always it's, be my maybe always be my maybe and it has allison wong I think Ali, Ali, Wong. Ali Wong, she is in it and they bring in Keanu Reeves and first of all, he's fucking amazing in that movie. <laughs> but I saw an interview with him and he expressed he's like it was really refreshing to first like to be validated mm-hmm. as Asian. Yeah. So it was so yeah. Yeah, and I the thing I want to make clear is it's not Keanu Reeves' fault if he's read <laughs> as white. Um but it is interesting to consider this as a white savior narrative with a mixed race man of Asian descent mm-hmm. and native Hawaiian descent as the white figure. Just fascinating. Um but I don't know. I think some clearer parallels to our world would have helped, right? Mm-hmm. Um I don't think that it needs to go as direct as the video game where it like the first line of the video game is as David Hume wrote I think maybe we can scale it back from that a little bit. But um, at least it does say, like, this is a person you can go read about. But does, doesn't does the inclusion of Simulacra and Simulation with John Baudrillard's name right there on the cover do the same thing? I think that the outrightness of having to read for the game, as this person said, will lead more people. I think, yes, definitely having that. But if there. you want to be like Neo, don't you want to read what Neo reads? And then you look at Simulacra and Simulation, you throw it across the room and they're like, this is too hard. <laughs> I don't know if people want to be like Neo as in... Oh, I think they do. Oh, this is... Because I feel like, I don't know, it's really difficult for me because usually when I watch a movie, I watch it at face value until like I start talking about it. And I think a lot of people watch things at face value. Mm-hmm. So I think coming away with like, what if we are, what if everything isn't fake? It's really easy to stop at. Mm-hmm. And it, and if you're not paying attention, you're just looking at the cool shit. I think it's easy to forget those things, right. like the Baudrillard and stuff like that. So I think. I think it's just like almost they went too hard or not like clear. They're really clear. I think because so I'm thinking about myself younger and like when I saw somebody like I read a lot of books because bands name dropped the book or watch a lot of movies because they would name they would drop a line from the movie into a song or as the title of the song because I wanted to be part of that discussion. Yes, absolutely. And I, I feel like if I were a different person, such as if I was a 20-year-old white man in 2000, whenever this movie came out, and I watched this movie, I might be inclined to want to be like Neo. I might want a sick trench coat and some little sunglasses. And I might be like, what does Neo do? I also, like, I can't, 
Like, I think there's just too many people who are like, it's not that deep. <laughs> you know? I think the same thing happens for me with a lot of horror movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I saw this person with a truck that had, like, all this horror movie stuff on it. Like, tons. And then it had a Blue Lives Matter. And I was like, I don't think, like, a lot of these horror movies are, like, not conservative yeah. <laughs> stories. <laughs> like, like, horror movies tend to, like, lean towards more, like social issues mm-hmm. um and so i think that people are just like it's not that deep but i think it's really this, easy to say what if everything is fake it's so frustrating to me that people see this and go it's not that deep because like literally it's they so put deep. they put simulacra and simulation in the movie it's right there it's, it, that's, i agree i just think that there aren't enough people to really come out and be like ooh. Let's go. I but then the question is why and what like why not and it's it comes yeah. back to that same idea of like self delusion yeah um and like taking you know every day we take the we take a blue and a red pill yeah um and and there's I just the way what I came down here is that I don't know that there really is much the Wachowskis could have done other than to have Neo look directly into yeah. the screen and go this is a movie about your life this is a this is a metaphor. For the life that you live, I mean, they could have put that in the end with Morpheus talking. <laughs> I would, I could, and then they, and then they could have followed up with like the, in the credits, like further reading. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> put a little bu- bibliography at the end. Yeah, put a little. I mean, listen, I would love if a lot of movies did that. That'd yeah, be sweet. Yeah, I think being a little more explicit about things would have at least resisted some of these readings. Maybe making it a little less desirable to read ourselves as Neo, the one person seeing through and manipulating the illusion, rather than as the regular people who are being duped by the simulation. I think maybe those things would have helped. Yeah. Overall, I think these movies are really interesting and their impact on pop culture is huge. Like, I can't think of anything with a larger pop culture resonance. I mean, it affected movies forever. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and the way that obviously the red pilling we like I it's not like it didn't have that huge of an impact on me but when I think about, like I was familiar with the matrix before watching the matrix because of its like yeah. pop culture um, osmosis I guess it was in everything it was in Trek yeah you know it's in everything it's in everything um, I I like what the Wachowskis are doing more than I like the execution which mm-hmm. we can talk about more in the next episode um, but regardless of my personal enjoyment of these movies I'm really glad that they exist even if the messages in them sometimes have been co-opted by some of the worth, worst people on earth and by that I don't mean lonely men I mean men who commit mass shootings and people who poison the earth and enact racist policies and Elon Musk and so on um, <laughs> that is not the Wachowskis fault even if I wish that they had been a little clearer about the themes and how they connect to the real world rather than just how they fit into the Mm sci-fi universe. But I don't know because I don't feel that it's necessarily their responsibility to create a story that guides people in a particular direction. I totally agree. I don't think you should dumb down your, what you have to say. So, so you can make a better impact morally on, on the world. Yeah. I don't think that's the purpose of art. That's the purpose of some art, but like, I don't think that all art needs to be as digestible as possible to be effective. Especially when you think about it being a trans allegory, then this is deeply personal. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it is okay that these movies are sometimes messy and that they sometimes fail to get the point across. And I appreciate that they always swing for the fences, which should surprise nobody. Um, Even when they can't see past their own biases, which was a big problem in Sense8. Um, Anyway, there are so many layers to this franchise and so much fascinating research on them that we can really only scratch the surface, even in two episodes. Like, yeah, there's so much. Yeah. 
Um, so if you have something you'd really like to hear about in our next episode, please let us know. I will do my best to squeeze it into the outline. You can always reach us at contact at fakegirlscast.com. Um, do you have anything else to say? No, this was a difficult, com- not, like, not like difficult, but like it was, I think there's a lot to wrap your mind around and I still like. Free your mind. Yeah, right. I still, I'm sure there are things in this podcast that I have said today that I'm going to think back like, oh no, I, I disagree with what I said there because I, I do like, that constantly. Yeah. Cause, well, cause it's, I think for a lot of this, like, yes, this is the second time I've heard all, heard all of this, but it's still, I'm still like trying to figure out how I feel and it's difficult when like so many people got such a different idea from this movie mm-hmm. so like trying to figure out how they take it or different philosophers and it's just it's a lot and I applaud you for getting this all together well I think the the the, the point like my main takeaway here is less there are answers and more there are questions and the questions yeah. are worth asking I agree I would so agree with that if you if you 100% disagree with me on like everything I've said in this episode that's fine because I think that the movie did what it should have done which is cause you to ask questions yeah. unless the only question that you ask is what if we are living in a simulation we are <laughs> or is Keanu Reeves a babe he is a babe until he becomes the one then he's not a babe anymore. But he is. They just put him in stupid shit. It's true. He is still a babe. He's a babe in stupid shit. He's yeah. A, he's a shitty babe. I don't. <laughs> we've, we've come full circle. Um, that's it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com. That has all of our previous episodes and a link to our Patreon, where for a small donation, you can give us money. That's what's that important. Simple. You can listen to us live stream, uh-huh. which we got working. Yep. We did fix it today. We did fix it. And you can hear all the things that Missy ends up taking out. Yep. Everything about Megan the baby. <laughs> um, <laughs> Leave that part in there. Maybe it'll, it'll, it'll entice, people. entice some people. <laughs> Maybe eventually if you join the Patreon, you'll get my spicy book talk oh, yeah. uh, reviews. Yes. Maybe I think we'll, we should do that. I think that'd be funny. I just read a really dumb one. Good. Um, I read a lot of dumb ones. Good. I did just get the audiobook for Holly Black's new new book. And I'm oh, nice! So excited. Um, you you can also email us contact at fakeygirlscast to get an invite. Sorry, contact at fakeygirlscast.com to get an invite to our Discord. Um, where we're always chatting about stuff. Today, uh, there's a conversation about plants and like growing food. Yeah, it's a very nice place. Everybody in it is super chill and friendly. And if you want to join in, please just send me an email contact at fakeygirlscast.com and I'll get you an invite. Yeah. Um, Next time, we'll be talking about the next two Matrix movies. That is Revolutions and Resurrections. It might or might not be. Plural. I'm pretty sure I can't super remember. I'm pretty sure the last movie, besides Animatrix now, is my favorite one. I'm really excited to watch the new one. I think the new one is so what much more explicit and probably because of everything we just talked about. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I really want to watch it. I want to know what it is like to look back at the Matrix, you know, 20 or so years later. And it's so meta, Missy. It's so meta. I, I'm really excited about that. <laughs> it's I, so meta. It starts with them working on the Matrix game. I'm so excited. <laughs> Um, after that, we're going to be doing Pushing Daisies, a special also treat so for me. And then we're going to be doing What We Do in the Shadows, also a special treat I for me. I think that we should bake pies for oh, Pushing Daisies episode. God. And we can eat a pie and do some ASMR. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. I'll make a pie or a galette. You can make one of the ones from the show. They have some interesting ones. The big one that she makes... She makes specifically for her aunts. It has antidepressants in it. You don't have to do that part. <laughs> I, mean, um, I can, but uh, it's a pear with a great with Gruyere baked into Ooh, the crust. 
That would be really good. For some reason, galettes are easier for me than pies. Oh, galettes are way easier. <laughs> they're, they're, my husband's always like, it's a pie without a pan. Yeah, it's like, but easier. It's, you don't have to bake it first. The crust always comes out better. It's delicious. I do have a pie crust in my freezer that I should probably use up though. Mm-hmm. But um, what we do in the shadows, I'm very excited about. And yeah, it's going to be good. Cool. Catch on the flip side. Or am I? Or is it a simulation? <laughs> what is the flip side really? Yeah. <laughs>